The LinkedIn Lawyer, an unprofessional network. What's the point of LinkedIn? A LinkedIn problem. Suppose the following. You're a white-collar professional, a knowledge worker. Your content is by definition new knowledge. This new knowledge is created using some information together with your professional expertise, meaning new knowledge is a professional opinion. New knowledge equals info inputs times professional expertise equals professional opinion. By LinkedIn's own purpose statement, posting such content is part and parcel of your LinkedIn subscription. They only do not allow fraudulent and misleading content. I will discuss this later. Now, suppose further that your job is a political and geopolitical observer or an economist commenting on global trade relations or a strategist for international business. In this case, you're showcasing of your professional expertise, your professional opinion, your professional news, if you will, will by definition include discussing international conflicts, a notoriously sensitive and divisive topic. Now imagine further that your research takes you to critically look at Western media presentation of the butcher crimes narrative, for example. And based on the cumulative Western and Ukrainian mainstream media pre presented evidence alone, so nothing else, no Russian evidence, just Ukrainian and Western, you conclude that, one, there is no credible evidence that Russian forces had anything to do with the alleged war crimes in Bucha, and two, there is overwhelming, in your opinion, evidence presented in the Western and Ukrainian mainstream media and on Ukrainian far-right social media, to implicate some pro-Kiev forces in these war crimes. Now, you've supposed all that, right? Now, suppose further that you post, or that you post this analysis on LinkedIn, and the link to your own platform, and somebody raises a complaint with LinkedIn that you're posting quote-unquote misinformation. In this very hypothetical example, what's LinkedIn to do? And now, business games. Welcome to a newsletter edition of Business Games, where we cover critical and strategic thinking based on examples from international business, geopolitics, propaganda, and bad strategy. And where we're getting both more snarky and philosophical. In this episode, I'd like to address the brand image of LinkedIn. I'd also like to address censorship and pose a question. Is censorship good for LinkedIn? As usual, feel free to disagree with my position. Please, read through to the end or listen through to the end. It won't be long. This is a short post. Now, what's the point of LinkedIn? LinkedIn's purpose. All of this is a hypothetical thought exercise, so bear with me. We want LinkedIn to reflect the best version of professional life. This is a community where we treat each other with respect and help each other succeed. LinkedIn's publishing platform is an ideal forum for to develop and strengthen your professional identity by sharing your knowledge and expertise in your job. It will be tied to your professional profile. Now, these are both uh, from LinkedIn's professional community policies and publishing platform guidelines, respectively, where link 
often implores the following. They say, remember to be professional and don't post anything misleading, fraudulent, obscene, threatening, hateful, defamatory, discriminatory, or illegal. A site that's called What is LinkedIn How Can I Use It states, well, it's not a site, it's a page on LinkedIn's site. Now they state, a complete LinkedIn profile can help you connect with opportunities by showcasing your unique professional story through experience, skills, and education. You can also use LinkedIn to organize offline events, join groups, write articles, post photos and videos, and more. But what does any of this mean? And why there is a fundamental brand problem for LinkedIn? LinkedIn wants to be a publishing platform where professionals create and exchange content relating to their professional lives. This much is clear. Now suppose the following. You're a white-collar professional, a knowledge worker. Your content is by definition new knowledge. Now this new knowledge is created using some information combined with, the professional, with your professional expertise, meaning new knowledge is a professional opinion. Now, by LinkedIn's own purpose statement, posting such content is part and parcel of your LinkedIn subscription. They only do not allow fraudulent and misleading content. Now, suppose further, your job is a political and geopolitical observer, or an economist commenting on global trade relations, or a strategist for international business. In this case, you're showcasing of your professional expertise, your professional news, if you will, will by definition include discussing international conflicts, a notoriously sensitive and divisive topic. Now imagine further that your research takes you to critically look at the Western media presentation of the Butcher crimes narrative from the Ukrainian conflict, and based on the cumulative Western and Ukrainian mainstream media evidence, you conclude that 1. There is no credible evidence that Russian forces had anything to do with the alleged war crimes in Butcher. And 2. There is overwhelming, in your opinion, which is hypothetical, in your opinion, there is overwhelming evidence presented in the Western and Ukrainian mainstream media, combined with the Ukrainian far-right social media, to implicate some pro-Kiev forces in those war crimes. Now suppose further that you post this analysis on LinkedIn with a link to your own platform and somebody raises a complaint with LinkedIn that you're posting misinformation. In this very hypothetical situation, what is LinkedIn to do? That's a LinkedIn problem. Damned if you don't, damned if you do. Now, no matter what LinkedIn does, there is no winning. Okay? LinkedIn has two choices. If LinkedIn does not censor the content on the grounds that A, there is no evidence of misinformation because your content is using factual evidence from verified Western sources and provides professional commentary on this evidence, which is LinkedIn's purpose, and B, you're not claiming anything as a fact, in that case, the complainer would get really vocal and offensive and claim that LinkedIn is Putin's agent or perpetrating Russian disinformation which would be damaging to LinkedIn's brand image because LinkedIn wants to be nice. Now, if on the other hand, LinkedIn tries to minimize bad press and caves to the demand and censors the material claiming that they're a private enterprise and can do whatever the hell they like on their platform, 
then you'd have all the reason to create bad press for LinkedIn based on their own misapplication of their own policy. If not outright for free speech abuse and censorship, you could do that. Now, this would obviously hurt their brand image amongst the professionals as it is impinging on the professional users of LinkedIn to use LinkedIn to showcase their professional news. So this goes against their brand purpose. Now, the obvious calculation for LinkedIn is to evaluate the expected damage from either of these scenarios, from either of these brand image threats, so basically to uphold their brand purpose but be smeared as Putin's agent, or to poop all over their brand purpose. The obvious calculation for LinkedIn is to evaluate these two against each other and choose the likely smaller one to minimize the damage. Now, in the post-2022 world of Western hysteria, and there's no better word, it's hysteria about the conflict in Ukraine, now, in particular, in light of the one-sided coverage of this conflict in the West, as part of what I claim to be Russia bad anti-marketing campaign, the LinkedIn calculation will likely come to the conclusion that avoiding a pro-Russian smear is preferable. So, LinkedIn will likely censor your post and dare you to involve the lawyers. Chances are, their pockets are deeper than yours, and their ability to control the PR narrative is better than yours. So this type of damage is less to them. Of course, if you're activism-minded and you believe that the truth is on your side, you'd probably create a post like this one, where you explain everything and ask people to share reposts and talk about this on social media. Likely not LinkedIn, although maybe on LinkedIn as well. Because if LinkedIn or any other social media is going to cave to the political winds of the day and censor legitimate content, thus violating their whole raison d'etre, their reason for existing, their whole purpose, then what would be the point of the likes of LinkedIn indeed? If a professional network that purports to share professional, fact-based opinions is censoring such fact-based professional opinions, what is the point? Now, all of this is a highly hypothetical thought exercise, of course, okay? So next, I'll cover my own experience with LinkedIn censorship, step-by-step analyzing their misinformation policy. So we're going to get really technical in a second. Now, I use Twitter to post this developing story. So, and the text version of this has the link to the Twitter post. And the Twitter thread basically has all of this step-by-step in a development. So there is no end to this story yet, but we'll close up this post and we'll update anything in the future should it develop or however it develops further, okay? So let's see if you agree with my analysis. LinkedIn's misinformation policy. Here is the LinkedIn's misinformation policy copied verbatim on the 3rd of February, 2023. So I have, in in the text I highlight in bold the parts which are most relevant to this discussion, but uh, let's go through this. Okay, so uh, you can go to LinkedIn's misinformation policy and chances are it's still the same. But on the 3rd of February 2023, it was like this. Uh, Verbatim. It is a violation of LinkedIn's professional community policies to post false or misleading content. We remove specific claims presented as fact 
that are demonstrably false or substantially misleading. We also remove or label content that contains disputed claims relating to sensitive political or socially divisive topics. Examples of false or misleading content. False claims that undermine trust and discourage participation in civic processes or misleads voters. Okay, that's not relevant. Claims that may induce panic or discourage others from taking safety precautions during an emergency. That's not relevant. Content inaccurately presented as evidence of human rights abuses or military conflict in a specific location that is actually content from another location, event, or time frame. This is potentially relevant. We'll get to this. Another bullet point, another example. Synthetic or manipulated media, such as doctored images or videos that distort real-life events and likely to cause harm to the subject, other individuals or groups, or society at large. Okay, so also park this one. We'll get to it later. Then we've got content that promotes harmful remedies or miracle cures, claims or statements that uh, directly contradict uh, WHO, World Health Organization. And then there's also a whole bunch of COVID-19 claims, okay? So none of the COVID-19 stuff relates to anything that we're discussing with, so I'm not going to read that. My post on Bucha and Mariupol humanitarian corridors, okay? So sometime during the week of the 23rd of January 2023, I put up the following post on LinkedIn, referencing my article, Mariupol and Bucha, Narrative v. Reality, with its link and its artwork. So you probably by now know the article, and you know what it says. The post was as follows. If we're connected on LinkedIn, then you likely know me professionally as an outstanding analyst. I'm banking on using this reputation to get you to read the evidence and analysis I present on Mariupol and Bucha. I understand that in the current environment, where peer-reviewed academic research into 2014 Maidan by a Canadian-Ukrainian academic can be censored for political reasons, it might be difficult for you to allow yourself to comment on or otherwise engage with this piece. Just read and think for yourself, is all I ask. From May to July 2022, I researched and drafted this article. With the new evidence from AP, so Associated Press, slash PBS, Bucha quote-unquote investigation, released in October 2022, as well as the recent politically motivated censure of a peer-reviewed academic article in a premium journal targeting a Canadian-Ukrainian academic researcher who showed beyond any reasonable doubt, that the massacre in 2014 Maidan was perpetrated by the Ukrainian far-right as a false flag operation to frame Yanukovych, so given all of that, I have finalized the draft and am comfortable with the presented material as solid. As an aside, not as factual, as solid. Back to quoting. I have exclusively used the Western and Ukrainian mainstream media information, plus one Al Jazeera. So there is zero Russian propaganda in here. What is in here is the application of the analytic and critical thinking principles to openly available information in order to separate fact from fiction. This is possible to do even by using one-sided, severely biased sources. The outcome is clear. In these two instances, shooting at Mariupol, humanitarian corridors plus Bucha, 
there is overwhelming evidence that these were perpetrated by the forces associated with the Kiev regime. There is no credible evidence that the Russian or Donbass troops had anything to do with these. Read and comment on the facts, please. How would you process the evidence I provide? Do you agree or disagree with my analysis? At hominem attacks will be blocked and reported. Support my work by becoming a paid subscriber, blah, blah, blah. That's it, right? Hashtag Mariupol, hashtag Bucha, hashtag Ukraine conflicts, critical thinking skills, la da 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 okay? Now, does LinkedIn know what they are doing? Let's again review and potentially the potentially most relevant bits of the LinkedIn misinformation policy that could, maybe, be applied to my post. And let's go step by step. Number one, we can rule out all and any item relating to healthcare or COVID-19. Number two, content inaccurately presented as evidence of human rights abuses or military conflict in a specific location that is actually from another location, event, or time frame. Now, that's a big fat nope. I haven't done it. All the human rights abuses I covered were from the same location, event, and time frame. I didn't present something from another location, uh, Syria, as, as an event in Bucha. Didn't happen. So that bullet point does not apply. Number three, synthetic or manipulated media such as doctored images or videos, blah, blah, blah. Now, what happened was I presented material from The Guardian, NBC News, SBS News, I showed exactly how it was doctored and manipulated. So the material presented on The Guardian, NBC, and CBS, SBS was doctored and manipulated. And I showed exactly how they did it. I also showed the real unedited video and highlighted exactly how The Guardian, NBC News, and SBS News manipulated it. So what I did do is I called out the Western media on manipulating media and I present direct evidence of such manipulation. Apart from the above, I have not provided links to much media at all. And where I do, they had not been manipulated. So I most certainly do not manipulate the media, right? So this point cannot apply to remove my post. Number four, post false or misleading content. Okay, I do not, do not post false or misleading content. I merely present the points made in the Western mainstream media and I apply critical thinking and ask questions of these points or I take them apart where they don't make sense. Like, for example, the Washington Post claiming that the Russian troops shot at their own location using unguided nail-like cluster munitions called flechettes, which makes no logical sense unless the Russian troops are suicidal and insane. Okay, so that's what I do. I say, okay, the Washington Post claims this, I don't think it makes any sense because XYZ. And I present the XYZ and I present what they post. So I do not post false or misleading content unless to challenge it. But then I'm very specific about it. Number five, specific claims presented as fact that are demonstrably false or substantially misleading. Okay, similarly, I do not present any claims as fact, let alone those that are demonstrably false or substantially misleading. If anything, I show that many claims made by the Western and Ukrainian media about the alleged war crimes in Bucha and Mariupol are demonstrably false or substantially misleading and or substantially misleading. Now, in order to make my case, I use Western and Ukrainian media pieces themselves, their earlier articles, and I make sure that my arguments are based on verified material. So examples include Denisova's lies about rape. 
for which she was later dismissed by the Kiev government. So Denisova was a Kiev government official, and she was dismissed by the government of Kiev for spreading lies. I also use Amnesty International report on pro-Kiev soldiers effectively using civilians as a human shield. I use the quotes given by the Kiev officials to the Western media, basically admitting that they use civilians as human shield, or at least that's the interpretation that I say. I give the quote, and then I say, how else would you interpret it, etc., etc. So the things that I present are definitely not claims presented as fact. I claim things presented as claims, and I present the facts where they are facts. So where the interpretation of the fact is not crystal clear, I present several alternative explanations and call on the reader to make up their mind. For example, uh, who could shoot at the Mariupol humanitarian corridors? Well, technically anybody could. Here are different scenarios. What do you think? That's the kind of analysis that I present. It's an opinion. Now, I'm very confident that that opinion is correct, but I'm not saying it's a fact. I'm saying it's an opinion. Now, again, none of what I write can be misconstrued as an untrue claim presented as fact, because I do not present anything as fact. It's clearly an opinion. I do present some things as facts, but in those cases, I have several sources of verification. Like, for example, the things that I do present as a fact is that the humanitarian corridors had been negotiated and then shot at. Both sides agree on these two items as facts. Both sides say that the humanitarian corridors had been negotiated, and both sides agree that they had been shot at. There's no debate. Both the pro-Kiev forces and the Donbass defenders confirm those. So we can be confident that that is a fact. Now, the sides just disagree on who shot at the corridors, a question which I analyzed, as I said. Now, regarding Butch in particular, I explicitly write the following passage. Does it mean that Russian troops did, in fact, commit war crimes in Butcher? To be honest, I don't know. Not no, no, anyway. And nor do you. Neither of us had been there. We can only look at the evidence presented, ask our critical questions, and evaluate various explanations based on the likelihoods. What we must not do is believe the first horrific picture with somebody else's narrative, be it Russian or Western. So I very explicitly say that I don't know what happened there. Now, what we're getting at, okay, what I'm not hinting, I'm very explicitly saying, that what I'm explicitly saying is that LinkedIn doesn't know what the fuck it's doing. It cannot interpret even its own policy and apply it properly and professionally. Now, notice probably the most controversial statement from my LinkedIn post, and what I said was this. The outcome is clear. In these two instances, there is overwhelming evidence that these were perpetrated by the forces associated with Kiev. There is no credible evidence that the Russian Donbass troops had anything to do with these. Read and comment on the facts, please. Well, how would you process the evidence that I provide? Do you agree or disagree with my analysis? Now, again, it's bleedingly obvious that I present my opinion and not a fact. So I make two stark claims, but I'm very clear in the language. I say that there is no credible evidence that the Russian Donbass troops had anything to do with these. So I'm not saying that Russians didn't do it, which is a statement of fact. I'm merely stating that there is no credible evidence. Now, I could have stated in my opinion for the LinkedIn lawyers specifically, but I think that part is bleedingly obvious from the next sentence, which is, how would you process the evidence I provide? So... It's clear that it's in my opinion. 
Now, and this, the second outcome is that there is overwhelming evidence that these were perpetrated by the forces associated with the Kiev regime. Again, because I immediately invite people to read what I present and tell me how they interpret the information provided, it's immediately obvious that it's my personal opinion. Now, I write elsewhere, what is in here is the application of the analytic and critical thinking principles to openly available information in order to separate fact from fiction. So it's an application of analytic and critical thinking principles. Okay, but none of this matters. None of this matters because LinkedIn misinformation experts also remove or label content that contains disputed claims relating to sensitive political or socially divisive topics. Which is a brilliant catch-all, basically giving them a carte blanche to do anything that they like. And now we come to the most interesting part of the LinkedIn policy. An effective carte blanche that LinkedIn gave itself to literally do whatever the heck it wants. Now, who decides what's a sensitive, political, or a socially divisive topic? Who should decide what's a sensitive, sensitive, political, or a socially divisive topic? Now, I can easily imagine that Bucha, as a topic, fits this sensitive, political, and socially divisive label. But this is where LinkedIn clearly went wrong, because in that case, none of the below should be available on LinkedIn either. And I present you with a list of screenshots that I posted on my Twitter and my Twitter thread of the articles that the LinkedIn has up and running on LinkedIn. And these posts are from somebody called Tetiana O, who's consulting tax force, refugee aid, Ukraine, and so on and so forth. We have to call the Russian war in Ukraine by its name. It is a genocide against Ukrainian people. Here is the video of proofs in English. So if you look for Bucha, this will be. And there is a video called Genocide in Ukraine, Research and Proof. Putin's words and soldiers' calls. And I screenshot that. There's also from David DeBato, who is, I don't know who he is, but he's a very anti-Russian person. Basically says, Ukraine, Putin personally authorized mass sexual assaults. And he's presenting evidence from Denisova, who says that the orders to rape were given by Putin personally. I don't know where, like, who can believe this shit? How do they know? Do they listen to Putin's calls? Have they heard Putin say personally that I order you to rape? And in any case, Denisova had subsequently admitted that all of this is a lie. And yet this post is still on. It's a nine-month-old post and it's still up on LinkedIn. Now, that is clearly a misinformation. It's, it's disinformation even. It's a lie presented as fact. It's a lie. We know it's a lie because Denisova, who is quoted here, admitted that she was lying about it. She was making shit up. And I covered this in my other article in the New York Times disinformation article. But here it is. Up on LinkedIn. Mariana Kozintseva said that uh, real-life Hunger Games are now being forced upon Mariupol residents after first being bombed by the Russian liberators, in quotes. They are now starved to death. And she presents a uh, photo of traps for pigeons. There is Anna Shapoval, who is a person with an alternative data strategy, something or other. 
basically presents a photo of mass graves, which is not clear where the hell these mass graves are. And it says hashtag genocide, hashtag Russian terrorism, hashtag Mariupol. None of this, okay? So all of these posts clearly fall under the LinkedIn's own misinformation policy. Well, some of them vaguely and some of them definitely, like the Denisova lights, clearly fall because it's presenting a lie as a fact. And the other stuff is, you know, could be considered these are very highly incendiary and um, posts about sensitive political and social divisive topics, right? And so my point is this. If my post is being censored, then why are these still up? And I'm not saying that they should be censored. I'm saying is that what I'm what I'm explicitly saying is that LinkedIn does not apply its own policy consistently. So to sum up, to the question, does LinkedIn know what they're doing? The answer seems to be no, they do not. At least insofar as it relates to the application of their own policy, they fail miserably. Because either the concrete parts of their policy do not apply to me, making their policy misapplied, or their carte blanche, we do whatever we like, part of their policy is applied unevenly. But maybe that's by design. It could be. As I already said, it probably is. They probably decided to roll with bullshit application of the misinformation policy um, just to minimize the, the other type of threat. But it still highlights how unprofessional they are. So if it's by design, which could be, so in that case, a professional network does exhibit an incredible level of unprofessionalism. Go get a lawyer. So when I finally bugged LinkedIn enough via Twitter, hey, public shaming works, they did get back to me via a ticket with this. And here's a quote of what they wrote. They said, if you believe we have made a mistake in removing a piece of content, you can request a second look. Well, duh, I know that. So this process is initiated through a link pre present in the email notification, blah, 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 blah. Once you've requested the second look, our trust and safety team will review the content again and notify you via email of their results. That will be the final decision regarding the restoration or removal of the content. Okay, I've done that. That's, that's Captain Obvious speaking. It's like, sure, yeah, I figured that much out. That's not the point. So that was not helpful. But they also included this. Here's what, this is really, really funny. They said, we will not be able to interpret the LinkedIn user agreement or professional community guidelines. If you require clarification of the LinkedIn user agreement or professional community guidelines, you may want to consider engaging a legal professional. Okay, so this is where I get really snarky. So first of all, cheap shot. Clarification is not a word, okay? So professional network should invest in trained professional personnel or at least a spell checker, okay? It's a Microsoft social media. It's Microsoft-owned social media, so they have Word at least for free. So, you know, it's clarification. Muppets. Second, I have, okay? My, my legal team is really good and want to do free stuff for me on this, okay? It's fun for them. So LinkedIn can expect a legal letter from them in the near future, if we do decide to go that way. And, and don't worry, I had generated a significant amount of business over the years for my legal team with all the client contract negotiations and whatnot. 
So this one will be pro bono, okay? They do want to take a stance against censorship and for free speech. And by the way, the policy that I have presented is not rocket science. Legal professionals do not need to read this. And when they do read, they come up with exactly the same outcome, or they came to exactly the same conclusion as I did, which is LinkedIn doesn't know what they are doing. They're censoring stuff willy-nilly in contravention to their own policy. Now, personally, I think LinkedIn should be able to interpret their own policy, if so asked. Because I tell them, step by step, none of this applies. If it does apply, let me know where. Though that then I reread what they wrote, and upon closer reading, maybe by writing, we will not be able to interpret the LinkedIn user agreement or professional communities guidelines. Maybe by writing that, LinkedIn quite literally meant what they wrote, as in, they're simply not able to interpret their own guidelines. They just can't. Because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. That's a possibility. This is the end of snarkiness. Whatever, I'm petty sometimes. Now, a couple of thought exercises, right? The pondering exercises. So this is where we're getting a little bit philosophical. So as I promised, it will get philosophical and snarky. We got snarky or snarky and philosophical. We got snarky. Now that now it's philosophical. Let's ponder free speech and the law. So apropos nothing, or maybe something. Here is an interesting website. What does free speech mean? Okay. So this is from the United States federal courts, with examples of rulings of what does and does not constitute free speech. It's really good. So among, here I read the website and I copy, it's a very short website. Among other cherished values, the First Amendment protects freedom of speech. The US Supreme Court often has struggled to determine what exactly constitutes protected speech. The following are examples of speech, both direct words and symbols, actions, sorry, both direct words and symbolic actions, that the court has decided are either entitled to First Amendment protections or not. The First Amendment states in relevant part that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. So freedom of speech includes the right, there are bullet points, not to speak, specifically the right not to salute the flag. There is a case of West Virginia Board of Education versus Barnett 319 U.S. 624 from 1943. It includes the right of students to wear black armbands to school to protest the war. Students do not shed their constitutional right at the schoolhouse gate. In Tinker v. Des Moines, 393 U.S. 503 from 1969. Now, I'm not going to read all of the cases, but so the also freedom of speech includes the right to use certain offensive words and phrases to convey political messages, to contribute money under certain circumstances to political campaigns, to advertise commercial products and professional services with some restrictions, to engage in symbolic speech, for example, burning the flag in protest. These are all examples of what constitutes free speech. Freedom of speech does not include the right to incite imminent lawless action. It does not include the right to make or distribute obscene materials. 
does not include the right to burn draft cards as an anti-war protest. It does not include the right to permit students to print articles in a school newspaper over the objections of the school administration. There's, there was a Hazelwood School District v. Kuhlmeier, or Kalmeier, 484 U.S. 260 from 1988, does not include the right of students to make an obscene speech at a school-sponsored event, does not include the right of students to advocate illegal drug use at a school-sponsored event, blah, blah, blah. There was a disclaimer. Now, all of these somehow relate to the things that do not constitute the uh, free speech right. They tend to relate to organizations restricting things within those organizations, like school, you know, or, uh, of, you know, does not include the right of students to make an obscene speech at a school-sponsored event. So if school sponsors event, the school has the right, or if the school publishes a newspaper, they have the right to not print some articles. Okay. So let's ponder, let's ponder a bit more censorship and brand value. So the the law is there. I, it's an interesting one. I it, it's it's misunderstood and largely debated. In general, I find that the existence of the law and the existence of that debate uh, is is a good thing. It's it's a healthy thing, and I'm just gonna leave that information there. So let's ponder censorship and brand value. Okay. So I covered most of this above, but let's do a little bit more in depth and let let's have a couple of uh, bullet points and ask some questions and thoughts about that. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine bullet points. And, and then we're almost done. Number one, is free speech important? So yes, I think it is. I've come to believe that it is one of the most important rights we have, and not only for the individuals, but also for the society as a whole. If people are able to speak their mind and debate, the truth is discovered. Problems are solved. Issues are discussed. If, on the other hand, people are censored or they self-censor, issues fester. Problems don't get discovered and solved on time, and conflicts can brew and blow up into violence. Number two, should LinkedIn uphold free speech? Well, it very much depends on what they see themselves as and what they want to be. I believe there should be some free social media, and maybe that's Twitter. Maybe one could say that LinkedIn is a private enterprise with its own rules. It makes the rules, and we can like them or not like them, whatever. It is, after all, a professional network. Now, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with this, but let's assume that for the time being, that LinkedIn as a professional network and freedom of speech isn't their number one priority. So to answer should they uphold free speech, I probably would, but maybe they don't, and that's fine. Pondering number three. Does LinkedIn uphold its own policies consistently? No, it does not. So I just showed you on my own example and then screenshots of other LinkedIn posts that could be classified as sensitive political issues that LinkedIn does not apply its own policy consistently. So for a professional quote-unquote ne network, that's simply not good enough. So I believe they're not professional. They're, they're basically unprofessional. 
Which brings me to the next pondering point. Number four, is LinkedIn professional? Well, does it look there professional? If you have a policy where you basically say we can do whatever we like at any point in time, evidently, and then you admit that we don't explain this to anyone, that's a shitty policy. In that case, you have governance and risk management and conduct risk issues. Number five, does censorship of analytic opinion fit into the LinkedIn's brand? Well, I'd claim not. I already made that claim. If you want to be a professional network amongst office professionals, the so-called knowledge workers, providing analytics on slash thinking about slash professional opinion on the current affairs is part and parcel of the job. LinkedIn's target audience literally lives off this type of content. And now you censor it? So my job is an analyst. My work product is literally analysis of markets and strategy. And now you censor my work product? When you say that it's your brand, it's your purpose to actually allow for that type of product to exist, by doing so, you literally starve me of my ability to showcase my skills. What is then your brand as LinkedIn exactly? I claim such behavior by LinkedIn is damaging to its brand or should be damaging to its brand and I will make sure that it is damaging to its brand because they are going exactly against their stated purpose. So either you state the purpose differently or you act coinciding with that purpose. Don't bullshit. So such behavior by LinkedIn is damaging to its brand as a professional network. It's an unprofessional network. Number six. But of course, LinkedIn isn't a purely professional network, is it? It's very much an activist network of a certain kind of quote-unquote activism. Let's call it wokeness. And I'm not passing judgment. I'm merely stating the obvious. This goes back to the woke washing slash greenwashing slash CSRing, so corporate social responsibility of capitalism over the past, let's say, five plus years, especially. But larger than that, probably since the 2008 um, global financial crisis and the repercussions and all the criticism that was thrown towards capitalism. Virtue signaling, and I do mean the absolutely cheap, consequence-free, blah-blah PR activity by the so-called professionals on LinkedIn who seemingly have nothing professional to show, but do spend time talking about stakeholder capitalism and doing well by doing good, that type of virtue signaling is ripe and well on LinkedIn. You know it, I know it, it's obvious, I don't need to cite any studies. Just go and look. So that type of activism, the activism that doesn't achieve anything, literally, because there's no cost to that activism. So that wokeness on LinkedIn carries no cost. There is no repercussion. There is no possible blowback. Nobody's going to be fired for saying we need more women in leadership. That type of activism doesn't mean diddly squat. So that virtue signaling is what it is. It's virtue signaling. Maybe there are some positive benefits. Maybe. But it's virtue signaling of the worst kind, in my opinion. So LinkedIn is not purely a professional network. It does have some sort of activism. But as soon as activism becomes too expensive for personal reasons, people get self-centered, self-censored. They self-censor and they do not provide debate which should be part and parcel of a true professional network, in my opinion. Especially if that job of that particular professional is to analyze and debate 
current affairs. So LinkedIn wants to have its cake and eat it too, and thereby lies a problem. So point number seven. So the LinkedIn's brand problem is this. On the one hand, it's not seriously a professional network where professionals can debate issues. So how can it be if the analysis of the news and well-researched and well-supported opinion pieces are censored? And on the other hand, given post-2022 partisan hysteria in discussing geopolitics, LinkedIn would suffer a vociferous cancel culture backlash if it were to allow a balanced post that challenges the mainstream narrative on Bucha, for example. Which is definitely a, a danger for LinkedIn to actually allow the post like mine to be up there. It's danger to me in my brand perception as a professional because people without if, if people have a knee-jerk reaction to, to this, which they will, they will claim that I'm Putin's apologist or whatnot because nobody reads anything. And if you look at the highlights, you come to the conclusion that I'm presenting something which I'm not actually presenting. But I have taken up that challenge and I have put my neck out because I think that A, it's an important topic and B, I have an insight which I can share and people should know and should be able to see for themselves what the situation is. However, I'm doing it fully cognizant of the fact that there is a negative hit on my own professional brand from some people, who most likely those who don't think. And I fully understand that LinkedIn has a similar type of issue, and therefore they have a brand problem. And that's exactly why Colin putting a Putin, a genocidal maniac, is totally fine on LinkedIn, but questioning Butcher narrative is not. So you can, can be as russophobic and racist as you want. If you claim that all Russians are genocidal maniacs and rapists because Putin told them to be and they just go out and rape everything that moves and things that don't, if you post that kind of content on LinkedIn, you're fine. But if you question the Western narrative on Butcher, you'll be censored. So either way, LinkedIn and its ilk shall lose some of their customers. So number eight, how do you reconcile this? Well, what's the role of social media, professional or otherwise, in 2023? That's a question. I don't have the answer. That's a billion-dollar question, isn't it? Actually, it's a $44 billion question, to be precise, because that's the price that Elon Musk paid for Twitter. And Elon's free speech absolutist quote-unquote stance seems to be somewhat suspect, but some things are certain. He did bring at least some form of balance to the social media landscape in terms of what topics are allowed to be covered. There's a lot of alliteration in that previous sentence. So as I said, that's a, that's a point to ponder. Number nine, and the final point to, to ponder. Quis custodiet ipsos custodes? I probably mispronounced the Latin, but it's a Latin phrase which is also known by its alternative translation of who watches the watchers. So this particular position about who watches the watchers makes the issue of free speech so thorny. Now, my personal belief, cancel culture and censorship are more dangerous than free speech absolutism. Can free speech be abused? For sure. Language is a mechanism of oppression if you want to take that stance. 
I would agree with you. But so is literally anything. Anything can be a mechanism of oppression. The remedy to this is not censorship. It's education. Same as the remedy to misinformation is not a disinformation czar or any of the similarly misguided initiatives from the USA's Biden, Canada's Trudeau, or our New Zealand's own Adern. The remedy is always better education with critical thinking being a key element of this. And I will get to the Adern's UN disinformation speech in the next post and some of these other things that I just mentioned. But who watches the watchers? Quis custodiet ipsus custodis? I don't know. But I would err on the side of free speech absolutism, coupled with education. Now, conclusion. That about does it. So I've given you a lot to think about. I made a case for why LinkedIn is an unprofessional network and their decisions of where to err, either to uphold their purpose or cave to the cancel culture. So I made a case for that. It seems through their actions they've decided they've chosen the letter. Okay, So I can't say I blame them. I'm a bit disappointed, whatever. It's not for me, but I understand their business decision. It is a business decision. I also can't say that I'll let it go. I will not let it go. There will be development to this story further. I will critique and criticize this. For example, LinkedIn uncensored one of my posts, not the one that I presented here, but another one subsequent to that, but the post disappeared. So currently I'm trying to figure out what the hell does that mean. Most importantly, what do you think LinkedIn should be? What's the point of it? Beyond the glorified business address book and CD repository. How can knowledge workers actually create and share knowledge if they get censored? What's the point of LinkedIn? I don't know. Seems to be a lot of wankery. And I paid the money for a long time, about nine years. I canceled my paid uh, subscription. You can figure out what nine years of premium subscription would actually cost. Now, how do you relate to the freedom of speech? As I said in the next post, I look at our former PM Jacinda Ardern's UN speech on disinformation. I look also at Christopher Hitchens' speech on free speech and some more thoughts about censorship in general. Now, I'm also working on a two and a half hour transcript of one of my interviews, which I'll post imminently. I promise. I've been promising this forever. Uh, this, it's, it's a lot. And also, the developing story that is this about LinkedIn is an ongoing, and I presented in a tweet. And now this really about does it. Discuss and share this content. Give us financial support if you can. Feel free to forward this email to others. That literally was read from the email version of this, but feel free to forward this particular podcast to others. We need to grow this, and your help is absolutely needed and wanted and appreciated. Thanks. Cheers, AI. <laughs>